you got to get passionate about this thing. If the cross doesn't move you, nothing will move you. I'm offering you something that's greater than silver and gold. I'm offering you something that's greater than an increase in your pay on your job. I'm offering you a... There's no shortcuts to the glory. We've got to get past week-to-week living. We've got to multiply our prayer life. We've got to multiply our efforts. And we are willing to give. God will always give it back to us in good measure. That is pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Hey, thanks for checking out our Christian Life Church podcast. You will be hearing from one of our pastors or guest speakers, either at our Frankfurt or Lebanon campus. Prepare your hearts and your minds to receive a word from God. Thanks for listening. Enjoy and receive this message. time is here and uh, we have reached the point where we are able to install ceiling tiles and insulation and um, this is going to help us. We're not going to be able to have a hundred percent close but we do have furnaces running and um, I think this week, earlier this week, I received a, uh, an email from our gas company that said you have surpassed your normal monthly quota the first 14 days of the month. And so that means those furnaces are just running around the clock. And so we're going to uh, put some ceiling tile in and some insulation in this weekend on Saturday morning about 9 o'clock if any of you men are available. And um, this um, uh, would be appreciated. There's a few already committed to be here, and uh, we're going to come together be a good time of fellowship. We'll meet about 9 o'clock, and if we work real hard and real fast, we may be done by shortly thereafter, and if it's afternoon, well, I'm going to buy lunch Saturday, so uh, you got to work some out for me. Amen. Romans chapter 15, verse number 1. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. I want you to let this sink in. 
we them that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let me stop for a moment here. Speaking of the infirmities of the weak, it is not necessarily talking about the sicknesses of the weak. It is talking, this is a very spiritual verse that is dealing with spiritual issues. And it is talking about those that are strong, understanding and recognizing that not everybody is going to understand our good intentions. And so therefore, be careful in our dealings with those who may have less of an understanding of Scripture than what we have. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. Now, some, some of these language, some of this language can be difficult for us to comprehend, so I'm just going to take my time tonight. I think I've got 16 pages. It takes me 10 minutes per page. That's 160 minutes. That's uh, almost a three-hour message. Breathe in. We won't finish tonight. I'll go as long as uh, as long as you're okay. I'll I'll be okay, and we'll wrap it up when when I feel that it's we've reached the spot that I need to conclude with. Let every one of us be considerate of our neighbor, and do whatever lifts him up and edifies him harm him again. Verse number three, for even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached me fell on me. So he took some things upon himself that did not belong to him. Now I could cross-reference all of this tonight, and I'd love to because I love to get into the to the writer of Hebrews when he said, for he was wounded for our transgressions. This is what Romans is talking about right here. He took some things that didn't belong to him, but he took them for our good. He was bruised for our transgressions. He, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. None of that had any benefit for him. He did all of that for and so in like-mindedness, the Apostle Paul is speaking to the saved church in Rome, and he is saying to them, such as Christ took the reproach of us upon himself, even so we ought to understand that we bear some burdens that's not about ourselves. Now I'm going to come back maybe and talk a little bit about this on Sunday, because I've got some Lord spoke to me on some things regarding self, and I'm going to start talking about that a little bit Sunday. Uh, put your Lord down. Are you ready now? Now, the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded, one toward another, according to Christ Jesus. Now, what I'm sharing with you tonight, some things that the Lord dealt with me about when I took a off and went up to North Dakota in the early mornings of, of I think it was a Thursday maybe the Lord began to deal with me I was up on the phone with my wife and we were sharing and bouncing thoughts and ideas uh, in scripture off of one another and, and what I felt the Lord was directing me to and my wife sharing with me what God was speaking to her in her prayer time and we were paralleling them to understand the importance of the church 
becoming like-minded. Everybody say like-minded. I'm not talking about everybody being put out of a cookie-cutter mold and everybody being just alike. But the Scripture does tell us that we ought to be like-minded. And here's how it says it. Not only here, it said, let the mind of Christ, the mind that was in Christ, also be in us. So it ought to not be my idea and your idea. It ought to be His idea. Verse number 6, that ye may with one mind, that's the mind of Christ, and with one mouth, that's our mouth, glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive ye one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. So here in verse number 7, it is talking about how we welcome each other into our personal lives. In other words, we can't say, look, I got a good family. I, everything I need, I don't really need anybody else, that's not Christian. And this is what the writer of Romans is talking about here. We've got to receive one another just like Christ received us because just as we were not worthy, he didn't need us, we needed him. And we've got to understand that there's going to be folks that's going to walk in the doors of this church and become members of this church as God continues to grow and and, and develop this church. Think about the day you walked in the doors of a church for your first time if you weren't raised, born and raised in, in, in the church. The first time you walked in, you were nervous, you were afraid, you were concerned, you were under the load of sin, guilt, all sorts of things. Preacher's preaching, you know he's preaching to you. You're looking around, somebody over there scratches their nose, and you're, you're, you're wondering if they're telling somebody a secret about you. you don't, you're all nervous and everything else, and, and along comes somebody that just says, Oh, it's so good to see you. Here comes Chelsea. Oh, it's so good to see you. and never met a stranger in my lifetime, and I love you so much. And you're going, My Lord, I don't know who this person is. She's a little over the top for me. And, 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 and then before long, she just got you wrapped all uh, up, and you're loving her, and, and, and she's the first person you think of. Before long, you realize you kind of belong here, and you meet others, and they're friendly, and you find out that they have issues in their life just like you have, and before long, you recognize that you can be welcomed into the body of Christ. Remember, just the same way that God accepted you just like you were and didn't leave you like he found you. Every person that walks in the doors of this building, we got to welcome just like they are, but make sure they don't leave the way they came. That's God's intention. And so that's what this text of Romans chapter 15 is telling us. And so I'm going to talk a little bit tonight about many members, one body. And the whole idea is what you're going to hear me talk about over the next, particularly tonight and Sunday, and maybe next Wednesday, well, Wednesday, we have service next Wednesday. We do have service next Wednesday. But tonight, Sunday, and next Wednesday, I know there's some Wednesday coming up here. Maybe it's a church that we're not going to have a midweek service. But it's a deal for our uh, children and adults and all of our music programming. We rehearse it for our, for our Christmas uh, celebration. So we will be back next Wednesday. But maybe tonight, Sunday, and next Wednesday, I'm going to be talking a lot about And we're going to talk a lot about the solution 
of self. Tonight we're going to talk about there are many members but one body. Now, in the beginning, as I start talking about there being many members but one body, what we've got to understand, when there are many members, that means there's a whole lot of people that if they wanted to be selfish, they would not be members. Because we become members, I'm not talking about just members of the church here, I'm talking about members of the body of Christ. The Bible talks about it a lot of different ways. We are a building, one, one, one writer wrote it in the scripture and said, we are a building that, are fit, that is fitly framed together. It talks about us being the body. We are many members, but there's one body. Let's read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse number 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. Or if Donald Trump was here, he would say 1 Corinthians. You'll, you'll get that. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For as the body is one, and hath many members. Did you get that? For as the body is how many? One. And hath many members. And all the members of that one body be many. Are one body. Don't forget that. tonight, Brother Mike, he always leads us to me and says, all right, Pastor, I need you to text Donna Dudley on Sunday morning. Two members on the screen. Sometimes I'm like, oh, man, this is 30 minutes before service, and I still don't really know what my title is, for lack of a better title than that. We're just going to call it many. Many members, one body. Well, that's original, isn't it? That's an old, old, old Apostle Paul is don't like it, take it up with him. He kind of clips it out for you. Stephen Covey wrote a book. Some of you maybe have read it. It's a simple, simply read book, but it became New York Times bestseller. Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. How many of you have read the book? Good. I see about four hands. That's good. How many highly successful people do you have? making enemies faster than I can win friends. Maybe I need to talk about the book, How to Win Friends and Enemies Quicker. Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, in which he describes the ingredients that would make regular people become highly successful people. And if you'll buy that book, you will help him become highly more, more highly successful. As we were talking about this that this week, talking about Dave Ramsey, he's got a lot of good ones, a lot of good, a lot of good ones. Uh, if you'll buy that book, it'll help him become more highly successful. He'll tell you how to get out of debt. Buy it with a credit card. So many of these principles that Stephen Covey used in his book of Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, 
Many of these principles can be adapted to most areas of our life. These principles would create strong families, positive relationships, and certainly beneficial for the church. And one of the principles that he suggests is to begin with the end in mind. What do you want the end product to look like? And so you began with the end in mind. And, and in, in my early years of trying to learn how to, to put a sermon together, I remember one of our instructors at Texas Bible College uh, way back then, 35 plus years ago, he made a statement regard, regarding developing a sermon thought, an idea. And he said, you have to begin with the end in mind. That is, what, what, are you, what do you feel that God is speaking to them and what, how do you feel, what, what is your belief, what do you think God is wanting to do in them and what does God want to do at that moment in the service. And so in, in putting that sermon together, as you were developing it, remember what you feel that God is wanting to do at the and so everything that you are speaking leading to that point should all be pointing to that one thing. And I thought that was brilliant. I didn't know that Stephen Covey's book must have already been out, maybe written by someone else. And so I understand that as a church, we, we adopt ideas, we, have, we, we cast vision, and ultimately... When we begin casting vision for the future of the church, what normally I have done is I've had an idea, I've prayed about it, I have sought God, I have sought counsel, I often have pulled different leaders and a pastoral team maybe, uh, maybe our entire leadership team together, uh, elders together, and we've talked and, and I've gotten feedback and I, I'm I kind of have an idea of what we're doing, how we're trying to go, and then a vision, a vision then needs a plan. And so it begins with the vision, and that is what I see that it could be. And then I develop a plan of action to get from where we are to how do we get there. And so then along the way, there are a lot of very small steps. Now, what I'm teaching you right now will work in every area of your life, whether it's parenting, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's in your home, on your job, these are just basic, basic principles. And so you, you begin with the end in mind and you develop thoughts and ideas and, and then of course as you lay that out you have to begin with an immediate plan, a long term plan and then a longer term plan that ultimately ends you where that you're wanting to go. And so then as you put that plan together, you begin to put dates and calendars and times and, and where you need to be landmarks. I need to be here by this date and here by this date. And so it's, it's just really that simple that then you begin to work the plan. You have your series of checks and balances. And so now as we're working the plan, we have landmarks of I'm ahead or I'm behind in reaching my goal. Because in reaching that goal, you also have to have some deadlines and some times. Some of these may be numeric. For those who are doing a great job retire, and, and, 
retirement, you probably do this without really thinking about it. Somewhere you made a decision to take a certain amount of money out of your paycheck every week or every month, and it is being invested in a specific spot, and then it is growing, and every now and then you go back and you pull out and you look to see how is this doing, how are my investments going, how, because you're thinking about retirement. And so we can do that there, but what about the other areas of life that are maybe more important than just building our nest egg? And what about the church of the living God? So therefore, the church, as the church, we have vision, we have plans, and I spend a lot of time talking about vision, trying to get people to catch the vision, because here's what happens. If you're married and you have a vision of someday building that home or buying that car or, or retirement, and your partner don't have the same vision that you have, and they like to shop a lot and run credit cards and all that kind of stuff. Am I meddling too much tonight? Should I get back to Scripture? And so if your partner doesn't have the same idea that you have, then what they are doing, they have a different vision than you have. And here's what we have to understand. There can only be one vision if you're going to be successful. I want you to say that with me, one vision. So there's many members, but there's one body. So there can only be one vision, because if you have two visions, you know what it's called? Division. And that's why it's so, the Bible is full of bringing us together in unity, and working together because there can only be one vision or we end up in division. So let me ask you a question at the onset of this lesson and these few lessons that I'm going to be teaching and preaching. What kind of church do you want to attend? Now hopefully that that's not a hard question for you to ask, for you to so if we're going to get from here to there, you can never want it or wish it enough for it to come to pass. So you have to work toward it, making it become what you want it to become. You can want to have the down payment for the house, but you're going to have to say no to eating out and no to some of the frivolous purchases and things that you want so that you can save in order to buy. If you're going to, if, if you want the church to be what it's going to be, you're going to make decisions and give up this, give up that, because we are working together for one specific purpose, to reach the goal of the vision. Is this making any sense? See, this is why we spend so much time talking about vision, trying to get people to capture and catch the vision and work toward it. So what kind of I sat down today and wrote a few things that I that I thought that I thought would be good. Let's make this church. These are some things we've been talking about. Now, now before I share this with you, let me let me lay this out just a little bit because I just before just before service, I I thought you know I wish that I actually had a number to know exactly how many people in this church actually operate right now. Mm -hmm. 
place where we can share our burdens and be our brother's keeper. See, because it's got to be, it's got to be give and take. I share my burdens so that you can help me carry them, but I've got to also help you carry yours because we're in this together. Everybody okay? A place where weeping, I liked what I wrote right here, I thought this was A place where weeping endures only for a night, but also a place where joy can be found in the morning. I think I'm in the scripture right now. Weep with those who weep. Mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. I think I'm in the We don't always have to weep and crawl on our hands and knees and beat ourselves on the back. I heard Pastor Danny, that's where my mind went when I was writing this. Pastor Danny, Sunday night, if you were here Sunday night, were you not blessed with those testimonies of what God is doing in the Philippines? And the amazing things that he shared with us in those Anytime those videos play, I think something happens. It automatically turns into a water fountain and I jump and jump and jump. So thrilled about what God is doing in the Philippines. And I was thinking about what God is doing and in his sharing, he showed us a picture. How many of you were here Sunday night? He he showed us a picture of, of, what is it, a church, a temple? And waiting outside because the building is so full they can't get in 
And so as soon as they end one service, the people come out and the next group runs in. And they have that service and they run out and the next, and the service goes on from early in the morning. Did I understand that right? From early in the morning to late at night, and they just go from one service to the next. I thought that was a good idea. The staff started calling me Jesus and getting some mail from me. about those that were there that were healed and that crawled into the building. And it reminded me, Pastor Danny, of being in Israel, my goodness, 26 years ago, 27 years ago maybe, I was in Israel and I ran into, our group ran into people that were on the Via Della Rosa, but they were crawling the Via Della Rosa. They weren't walking. They were crawling their way all the way from the supposed site, perhaps, of where the judgment hall would have been, where Jesus would have been taken, and where he would have carried the cross all the way up to Golgotha. And the place they call the place of the skull, whether it's accurate or not, I'm not here to debate. But they would go there come all the way back down and into the city. And while they're crawling on their hands and knees, they had something similar, perhaps, similar to um, what we would consider Jesus equipped with, the cat of nine tails. Uh, Many of you have seen the the whip, uh, maybe in in, uh, movies or uh, dramas and that sort of thing. They would have something similar to that. And while they are crawling, they're hitting themselves with every move. They're hitting themselves, and many of them on their bare backs, and their backs are bleeding, and the blood is dripping off of them. And I watched those people as they did that, and somehow their religion perhaps has taught them that if if they punish themselves and hurt themselves and sacrifice to the point that it becomes so painful that they're they're bloody that maybe they get the attention of God and maybe then that God would forgive their sins and maybe then that they could have a possibility of heaven first off i'm going to tell you that's nonsense There are times of consecration. We're getting ready to go into our church season of consecration in January and February where we do an extended fast and we try to make it palatable for everyone and where from the youngest to the oldest, the healthiest, to even those with health problems can find a way to participate. We have a lot of prayer meetings, a lot of church. There's a lot happening. We're called together a lot. People are fasting, some doing all-out fast, some doing Daniel's fast, some fasting three, four, seven days at a time. At one particular point, some, and I don't want to rob them of their blessing, that literally did a 40-day fast with only water and and juice. And these are good and well. That's that's not, not against that at all. That's 
the Bible, the Bible is in favor of those things, and we need those things because as we tune out the things of this world, we become in tune with the things of God. And so we prepare ourselves to be able to see and receive what God is doing. But I'm going to tell you, your fasting and your long prayers is not what's going to get the attention of God. Beating yourself over the back and suffering in pain and living a life of torment uh, because you think it's going to get the attention of God, I don't find it anywhere in Scripture. And so therefore, our fasting is not to force God to do something. Our fasting is to get us in alignment to say, not my will but yours. And to maybe so that I can see in the middle of all that's going on in my life all the ways that I've become selfish and that I can stop seeking myself and start seeking your will. Stop being about me and start being about you. But as my thought, that was a long explanation on that And so I was thinking about that and how that sometimes we come and strong messages are preached and there's conviction and it calls us to the altar and it calls us on our knees and it calls us to repent and we need those services, we need those moments, we need that place where we are pouring it all out to the Lord. But here's what I wrote when I talked about the kind of church that we need. We need a church that responds to conviction preaching by deep consecration, dedication, and prayer. We need to weep, crawl, or roll to get into his presence. But we don't always need to weep, crawl, and sacrifice. We don't always have to come to him with our head in our hands. Sometimes we need to come before his presence and sing it. We need to stand. We need to lift our hands. We need to rejoice in the Lord. We need to dance and we need to celebrate because he's been good to us. So it's all right. I'm talking about what kind of church do we want this to be. A place where we can laugh together. I've already talked about weeping together and sharing together. But we also need a place that we can laugh together and play together and live together and find joy in serving God together. Another of the habits. i got to go. Also a place where we can laugh together and find joy in serving God together. But then there's another habit that Stephen Covey talks about in his book. And watch watch how he says it, and this is so applicable to the church. To seek first to understand before we ask people 
who understands us like we need to understand ourselves. Seek first to understand and then to be instructed. In other words, listen to the thoughts and feelings and ideas of others, then try to communicate your own thoughts and ideas to them. The third the third thing that Stephen Covey puts in his book, he uses a word that maybe only those in technical leadership would, would even use or find common. The third word that he used is synergism, synergizing. This is about what that word means and what his idea means is two or more people working together to produce more than any one of us, even high performers, can do on our own. So some of us may be high performers, and it's like, hey, hey, guys, I can, I can really do this. I, I can do this on my own. But let me, let me just say this. There's some brilliant minds in this room tonight. Sometimes before I come to this pulpit, you know what I say to God? I'm in my office and I say, God, there's no way possible that I can do this. I'm going in to preach to people that have more education than me. I'm going going in to preach to people that's been living for God longer than me. I'm going in to preach to people that's got more experience in the subject that you've laid on my heart for this service tonight, but I'm going in to talk to them about what I believe your word is right here. God, there's no way I can do this by myself. And here's what I've learned. There's some smart people in this room. Some of you have great educations. Many of you even with degrees. Here's what I want you to understand. No matter how brilliant you are, not one of us are as smart as all of us. Because when we start working together, watch out. I was in a little meeting a while back with a group of ladies, and I looked around the room, and these are pretty high-performing ladies. Some of these have pretty high-level jobs, and there was about four ladies in the room. I'm sitting there. I looked around the room, and I said, right now, I'm feeling outnumbered. I'm the only man in the room. I'm the least educated, and on top of that, I, I speak Texan. I don't even get all my words right. Not one of us are as smart as everybody, and not one of us can do it unless we work together. That word is synergism. Working together to produce more than any one of us can do separately by building a mutual problem-solving atmosphere based on loving one another, learning together, and cooperation. Working around one vision and one plan. There's no doubt in my mind that learning to live together as a family is one of the most important assignments that God has given us on this earth. Most of you who have had children know that it's pretty easy to decide what's going to happen in the household as long as your children are young. out tonight thinking, man, it's going to be quiet. I'm going to sit down with my kids and we're going to pack and we're going to play. 
can I say to them that when they become teenagers, they know more of us than most of us out there. And it's not until they're about 25 or 30 that we get brains enough to write our name again. And I thank God for watching me grow up. I mean, I, I was the dumbest man on the planet for a while. Now all of a sudden, I've got married sons coming saying, hey, Dad, I need you to tell me something about around this around their ideas. I'm talking about what, when they get good, what kind of good is us losing ourselves in the midst of the problem and us submerging ourselves into his plan and it not being about me and mine and myself and my ideas but saying, wait, stop. What is the vision? Are we really becoming a Jesus name apostolic church in these last days for this region in north central Indiana? What are we doing to reach the lost, disciple them, and grow them and develop them and sending people out to do that all over again? Is our mission, is what we are doing, or does it have to all be my way so that I can get the credit and I don't get my feet wet? It's one of the hardest things in the world is learning to live together with as a nation, as the bride of Christ. That's the way the scripture calls us. We are part of the body of Christ, and we are called the bride of Christ. She is making herself ready for this generation. So learning to work together in the church is the key to the success or the failure of the congregation and, the, and the, the mission of the leadership. So I want to talk about this for a little while, maybe for the next few services, because a house divided cannot stand. So if you're over here saying, hey, this is what we're doing, this is the plan, we've come together in agreement, we've decided this is the way things are going, and we're working toward it, but somebody else over here says, no, I'm going to do it my way, I'm going to be an island to myself. You know what they say, no lion to its den. That is the truth. You grow up hearing that in every team sport that you've ever played. There's no I in team because we have to lean our strength. We must learn to work together. No ministry can be an island to itself. We are laborers together. And as the pastor... It's my job to try to help see that we are working together in harmony. The Bible lays it out very clear that there are times that I have to go to the one and leave the 99 to go to the one and try to bring them back into the fold. But if I spend all of my time always trying to get the same one back in the fold and ignoring the 99, we're going to have another problem. The 99 are going to leave. And then we've got to try to get them back in the fold. And so it's not an easy task. I'm not complaining at all. This is what God called me to. This is an honor and privilege. And let me just sidebar this and say, if you haven't heard it, 
going to hear it, and you're going to hear it over again and again. It's hard work in the kingdom of God, but I'm going to tell you, it is a privilege to be able to work in the kingdom of God. I've got the greatest job on the planet. I'm working in the kingdom of God. Everything you're doing in the kingdom of God is the greatest thing because only what you're doing for Christ is going to last. Nothing else is going to help you do it. It's simple. Gain money, gain houses, land, wealth, fame, fortune. Boy, you better take it before you go to heaven. Hopefully you take advantage of it. But you're not going to take your money and your house So every ministry must complement the next. This is the idea. Not in competition, but in harmony. Our small groups. I love to hear the reports when they come in of success and good things that happen. Whether it was two or 20 that showed up, it's not competition. We should support one another. Some people may not be fit for one group, but they would fit better in another group. That's okay. We are working together because we are many members. A lot of different personalities, a lot of different ways of doing things. We are literally many. We are all members of one body. Every ministry should complement the next, not in competition, but in harmony. When I, as a pastor, step in and offer succession, it's not an attempt to harm or to control. As a matter of fact, think about this. If I wanted, I could position myself over every minister in this church and say, you are going to be successful. So I don't need to reach back over. And neither is it in an attempt to devalue Rather, often it is about pulling us together in harmony because we're more than just one ministry. There's a lot of different ministries that are trying to work together. You're going to hear about this a little bit on Sunday, how we are working together. Somebody say hug. You're going to hear a little bit about it Sunday. There is more than one member and more than one ministry, but there are many members hand stay to the foot, then I don't need to reach back over. We are laboring together because we are one body. In our text that we read a few minutes ago, the apostle has listed seven habits that the church needs to develop, and I want to look at these from a personal angle, if I may, because we are many members of one body, and I'm not trying to read Stephen Covey's book, and I, I've read enough about his book go on to say that we're going to go home and say, well, I could have read Stephen Covey's book and got everything the pastor had to say. I'm going to assume that some of you have read that too. But I want to get into scripture tonight. So what are some of the habits that our church needs to develop if we're going to become highly successful? Romans 15 points out seven habits that will make our church successful. First, let me say that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Christians in Rome. 
so that they would have a better understanding of the gospel that he preached and the kind of life that that he lived. Paul, Paul had never even been but he knew quite a bit about the people that lived there. If you read chapter 16, you'll see many of the names of the people that he knew. Evidently, they were scattered about in the city in small congregations meeting in each other's homes. And in chapter 15, he describes the habits that the members of each family need to develop. And he begins, the first thing he says, the first habit that he talks about is consider is the consideration of one another. What does it mean? This, this, this lesson would be so much better if we were a small group and I was just able to sit around with six, eight, or ten of you and we talked about what does it mean to consider one another. I'm not going to open it for discussion tonight because with a group of 50, 60, 80 people, I don't know how many people are in the room tonight, however many people may be in the room tonight, uh, we would spend all of our time, if I gave one of you just a minute apiece, we would be way past time in this room. So um, I'm going to take all your time. is, many of us, I, I may know certain things because somebody calls me, and, and here's what, just, just know this, just a little sidebar, when you call me and say, Pastor, I need you to pray for me, we're going through X, Y, Z, this is all going on, you can pray, and by the way, don't share this with anybody. Can I tell you what that does? I have to make decisions, even with leadership, that I can't even tell them why I'm doing what I'm doing. And so then I've got people that are not understanding decisions that I make because I've been put under, under this, this stress of don't tell anybody. Now there's some things that you have a right to tell me don't tell anybody. But sometimes it's, you know, I've got this sickness. I had a hangnail last week. Just don't tell anybody. But I come to church and every person I see you talking to, you're over there telling them what you told me not to tell them. And I'm over here going, what in the world they tell me not to tell them if they're going to go tell everybody? Somebody's sick, but don't tell anybody. You know what the Bible said? If you're sick, call for the elders. It's okay to be sick. Call for the elders. You don't have to be ashamed. There's some things that should be kept private. I'm, 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 I'm not talking about those things. I don't want to cast judgment on somebody that's come to me recently and said, I've got something very deep in my life and something's very private. But we don't have to be, we ought, we need to be, we need to be comfortable with one another knowing, hey, so-and-so's going through it right now. So that they know to pray with you. And they also know when you come walking in the door and you're not yourself, they don't run to the other side of the room and say, I don't know what's the matter with them, but I think they're mad at me this week. And I'm over here going, I can tell you what's wrong, but I can't. Because their dog died and they had a flat on the car and they can't, they lost their job and all this is going on. They come in kind of halfway smiling and speaking to two or three people and somebody else over here is offended and they think something and I'm over here going, I can't tell you what's going on. We've got to become comfortable 
with one another. And this, this comes by building trust. And so we've got to be safe enough with one another to use wisdom to know. If somebody shares something with me, I've got to ask them and the Lord, what is wisdom going to do with this? Am I going to hurt them with this or am I going to use this as a point of prayer? And some things we ought to be comfortable with sharing and some things we need to just know. They shared it with us, we're going to know where it came from. And when we build that trust across the board with our congregation, I'm talking about considering one another. What does it mean to consider one another? That we are considering when we see somebody not acting themselves, can we consider that they may be going through something that we don't know about? They may be struggling with some things that nobody knows, some things that they may even be embarrassed about themselves. And so considering one another, this is the first habit that the Apostle Paul talks about. Consider one another because you don't know what your faith is going to do. Verse 24, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and Maybe somebody's had something happen to them and they're in a very bad frame of mind and they're ready to go, you know, take baseball bats to some people's knee. We need to, we need to consider the fact, we need to talk them down off the cliff about to make a mistake. We might ought to pull them, pull them together and say, hey, brother, you know, you might need something to think about that. I love you, but you don't need to go burn your house down. We are to provoke one another to love and to good works. Consider them to provoke them to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. In any congregation, you have a mix of people who some have been there for a long time, some are new, some for a short time. And with this mix of people come many different personalities, many different views, many different opinions, ideas, life experiences often shape those opinions and views. That's why if you ask one of our elders that's been through some things, hey, should we go buy a new car? The elder may say, yes, let's buy the new car. The young people come down from upstairs and they've picked out the new Corvette and the elder swallows their tongue saying, well, no, I mean, Let's go for the Ford Fusion. See, because you know you got to pay that thing up to the back. And, of course, youth don't think in the realm of the same reason because they don't have the same life experiences. They've never had to miss a meal to make a car payment. Hello, somebody. And so they, they don't have the same life experiences. And so we got to provoke them to good works got to help them, but we also have to consider them. And so with this mix of people come all of these different opinions. You read chapter 14, you see the major differences had to do with whether or not they were to eat meat. Now I've shared this with you before and I'm going to share it with you again because this is so important as we're talking about self, right? So we're talking a lot about self. When, when the apostle begins to write about meat, and he says meat's good for the body, 
but if it offends your brother, don't eat meat. Well, I don't want on that wagon because I like meat. And if you're a vegetarian, God bless your heart. Now, I had a strange thing happen a few weeks ago. I went on a hunting trip shooting live, real animals that produce real meat. I mean, that's where meat comes from, right? Just that simple. By humans, I'm sorry. Maybe it's just because I'm part human. And he tells me, by the way, Apostle said, if eating meat offends your brother, while we were on that hunting trip, he said, now look, it ain't going to bother me one bit whatsoever. He said, you guys, he told me and Dylan, he said, you guys eat whatever you want. We said, thank you, we are. We've been to this restaurant before. We're going to have the pork now. Boy, wasn't it good. He was over there eating a baked potato. So the writer says, body is good, but if offends your brother, don't eat meat. Let the, let the strong yield to the weak. So I'm thinking about this. The truth is, after some research, I understood that the, the struggle here in this text was because some were offended by eating meat because they said it had been offered to idols. And others over here saying, meat's good for the body. Who cares if it was offered to idols? That has nothing to do with me. I want to eat meat. And the apostle is trying to help them understand, look, this group over here, they were, they don't just know about meat that's offered to idols. They came out of idolatry. They're new Christians. They were raised in idolatry. They grew up in idolatry. They went to the temple with meat sacrifices and offered them to false idol gods. And the idolatrous priests took their sacrifice of meat and took it to the market and sold it in the marketplace for people to eat. And they said, when I was in idolatry, I did that. So if I go down to the market and I buy meat that, were, that was sacrificed to idols, then I am participating in idolatry. See, the Apostle Paul says, we know that that's nonsense. We understand. But the deal is, it is their perspective because of their upbringing. So I was running a construction crew working in Fort Wayne, Indiana. 
And we were a few guys short, and I needed to hire some extra help. At that time, Brother Jordan Sultemeyer was laid off. I picked him up. Brother Danny was there. I had a whole slew of guys working for me back back then. And we were still needing some people to work. And I called one local pastor of a large church there, and he said, I have just the guy for you, and he needs work right now. His name was John. And he sent John over, and John got there, and he told me, he said, John's going to make you laugh, and he's a wild man. He said, but he loves the Lord, and he said he probably wins about 30 to 40 people to God every year, baptizing them and teaching them the Bible. And I said, wow, that's amazing. But when John got there, he did not know the Lord at all. I heard him before I saw him. Here he comes, talking 90 minutes and miles a minute. And so I pulled him over to work close to me and uh, to kind of keep him off of everybody else for a while. And we're working. He's over trying to find people to talk to. And next thing you know, he's witnessing to somebody on the job. And I'm trying to reel it in a little bit. And so he tells me his story. That he was in a motorcycle gang, rough dude, and starts sharing a pretty elaborate story of the life that he had lived and where he was when God saved him. And God delivered him from a life of drugs and criminal activities and all the good that he was doing then. And we rejoiced. And so a little while later, I looked at him and I said, John, so you're really into motorcycles. What kind of bike do you have? Not that it mattered to me. I don't know one from another. And I said, what kind of bike do you have? And I knew that that question would probably lead to another 20 minutes of him talking. And so he starts telling me, oh, no, 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 not me. I don't have a motorcycle. He said, I won't ever have a motorcycle. He said, I came out of that life, that life of sin. I won't ever have a motorcycle. And all of a sudden, he must have seen the look on my face. He said, no, 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 no. If you have a motorcycle, let's go get it. And I said, okay, well, explain yourself. And he said, see, I talked to my pastor, and I told him kind of how I felt, but I, I kind of wanted a motorcycle. And he told me, sure, go get one. And he said, I went to get it. And he said, I went down, and he said, I went to take it for a test drive, and I started it, and I set out on it. He said, the moment that I revved that engine on that Harley, he said, it was like something came over me. And he said, every feeling from my old life came over me. And he said, every memory of women that I had just met in a bar, jumping on the back of that bike to go do God knows whatever. And he said, all of these feelings came over me. He said, I shut it off, got off the bike and told the salesman, Sir, I'm not interested. And the salesman didn't understand. He said, well, why? Did some, what, what did he say to you? I'm not interested. He got in the car and left. And I never went to look for him again after God delivered him from that life. He said, but now if you have a bike, you didn't come from that background. I don't know anything about that. I was born, my dad was pastoring a church. I grew up under the second row of a church pew playing with my little hot rod cars. That church is all I ever knew. I don't know anything about that. Meat's good for the body, but if it offends your brother. So while John and I worked together, you know what we didn't do? We didn't talk about bikes, motorcycle riding. Anybody with me right now? I'm about done. 
I'm considering my brother because he came from a different background than I came from. And for him, that would lead him back into a life of sin. And so I'm okay not having, not, not talking about bikes or even riding one up and revving the engine in front of him and making fun of him for being a bastard. That's what it's talking about. Considering the fact that my decision could push him back to a life of sin. And so therefore, I choose to not even talk to him. They had, in other words, there. this is called a conviction. Everybody say conviction. I'll be done in four minutes. It's called a conviction. Here's the issue. In every church with many members, there will be a lot of people with different convictions, different thoughts, and different ideas. Look. There are some things that are in this book that tells us what we should do and should not do. Those things, they are settled, forever settled in heaven. But a conviction of some things that you should do or not do that is only a conviction and not found in the Word of God and not taught by principle in the Word of God and not taught by the mainstream teaching of this church, then those are things that we ought to give liberty to others to do. Although I choose not to do it, that's called a conviction. I would never eat meat because we allow our holiness to become nothing but a stumbling block for our brothers and sisters. This is called considering one another. We don't know where they came from, but it's good. Everybody in this room ought to establish convictions, whatever they are. I promise you I never intend to make light or make fun of your conviction. If you have a conviction that God has called you to that is a biblical conviction and you're saying this is what God has called me to, by all means go after with all of your heart. Don't let anybody get in the way, but don't look down on those that have a different viewpoint than you do. Talk to them. Because this will always divide So there are those that come from all these different backgrounds. It wasn't easy for new Christians to understand this principle. Today, we don't have a problem with it. But the same types of people still exist. And that's why we need to consider one another with love and provoke them to good works. We accept them. We accept their views. I'm not talking about non-biblical. Don't anybody take this out of context. I'm not talking about disobedience to the Word of God. But when it comes to convictions, if it is not out of line with the Word of God, then love them. Receive them and provoke them to good works. In Romans 14, the Apostle Paul declares, we don't live life to ourselves. The decisions that we make and the actions that we take will affect everybody else. This does not mean that it is always good to give up so that they can do whatever they want to do because if it is a biblical thing, then we have a biblical mandate to share with them and to correct their views. So the question here is, are we developing the habit of living our life of faith, saying, I am going to make a 
come back to them. I won't come back here. Bring somebody with you to the house of the Lord. Let's stand and give God praise tonight because he kept us and brought us here tonight and let the word of God settle in our heart. Lord, we love you tonight and are thankful for your word. I thank you for these good people that have hung in here tonight as I have taught the word of God to them.